4.6 billion. The Earth forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans. 20,000. Agricultural. 250. Industrial revolution. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene. I'm Michael Osborne, and I am going to jump right into today's episode by bringing on our producer, Emmy Goodwin. Emmy, hello. Hi, how are you? I am good. Uh, how are you? I'm doing well. Like for real well? Internal Emmy is good? Internal mental health Emmy is good. <laughs> I'm very happy to hear that. All right. Can you tell us who we're going to be talking to today? Who is today's guest? So our guest today is Bradley Garrett. He's a professor at University College Dublin, but is known as being a geographer and has really made a name for himself by being an urban explorer who studies bunkers and more specifically underground spaces. Urban explorer who studies bunkers and underground spaces. Okay. Uh, and how did you first get turned on to this guy? How did you come across him? Well, I first came across him by reading his book, Bunker, Building for End Times, where he studies a wide range of communities that are preparing for future disasters or end times. Wow. Okay. Um, and so you and I actually both talked to Bradley for this interview. And, you know, the two of us, you and me, had a bunch of conversations behind the scenes about what makes this a generation Anthropocene story? How would you answer that question? So I think there are two ways that you could look at this as being a Gen Anthro episode. First is that humans are literally changing the surface of the earth, or rather the subsurface of the earth in the cases of Bradley's work. Yeah. So it's kind of like a literal geological thing. Exactly. And the second way, which is probably a little more important, is about how governments, as well as everyday people, are responding to the apocalyptic story and narratives that surround climate change. How they're preparing for it in unexpected ways. Exactly. Yeah. So to get into this, I think it's helpful to know a little bit more about Bradley's backstory. So when we first talked to him, we started off by asking what went into writing his book. The seed for this book really came from previous research. So I was working with urban explorers and we spent a lot of time sneaking into abandoned places, subterranean infrastructure, and also bunkers. And we got a lead about this bunker in Wiltshire in England, just about an hour outside of London, that was supposedly the place where the UK government was going to be reconstructed in the event of a nuclear attack on, on the city, on the capital. So this is like built in mid 20th century? In 1956, I think they began construction on Burlington. So it's, it's Cold War infrastructure. And you know, I, I almost think of them as like mythical subterranean cities. You know, supposedly there were 60 miles of roads inside this thing. BBC broadcasting stations that were obviously in a hardened facility so they could continue broadcasting even in the event of a, of a nuclear war. A giant reservoir of water that people would pull from. Obviously food supplies, kitchens, dormitories. And so we went out looking for this bunker and... It, it took a while, it took a bit of digging, literally, to get into the thing. But imagine that you're, you know, 100 feet underground, and 
you're driving through these roads that are carved out of a rock cavern. And at every turn, things are being revealed. You know, there's doors all the way down. So, you know, you pass the doors at first because you're looking for the big stuff. And, and we found the big stuff. We found the reservoir. We found the kitchens. I think the most exciting thing we found was a library that contained every map, book, and document that you would need to construct the UK government in the event of a nuclear attack. Absolutely incredible stuff, right? So, you know... Um, this is like lot, the bad cave on steroids. I know. This is yeah. insane. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah, yeah. that We found a room in there that was full of rotary telephones with the queen seal on them, still wrapped in plastic, hundreds of phones stacked <laughs> oh to the ceiling God. that would have been plugged into this, this telephone switchboard that was in a nuclear hardened facility. And I got to ask a couple questions here before you yeah. leap to the next one. Yeah, part go, 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 go. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out who the we is here. Like you and some buddies, are, you're, you're a researcher. Is this ethnographic research? Like, tell me what led up to... This. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so my P, my PhD at Royal Holloway University of London was on urban exploration. So I folded myself into these groups. I got to know people. I started tagging along on some of their adventures, and then eventually, as ethnography goes, became a member of the crew. Started leading adventures. What often happened with these sites that we explored uh, is that very few people knew about them. Like they weren't in the public imagination, right? That's why I say they're kind of in the realm of myth. Abandoned tube stations, subterranean infrastructure, um, you know, nuclear bunkers, underground cities, all of this stuff. I mean, it sounds beyond reason. Yeah. Um, But in the context of the Cold War, it makes sense, right? Because this is a bunker that was built to sustain about 3,000 people for three months underground while, while the government sort of reconfigured and and emerged into the post-apocalyptic world. In any case, we released the photos of this bunker, and it went wild, what wildly viral. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it got a lot of attention, and the government was then put in a difficult situation because this bunker, which was decommissioned at the time, has now been revealed. You know, the location, you know, all of the infrastructure inside the facility, and so they um, they decided to sell it. <laughs> They decided to sell the bunker because what do you do with it? It's obsolete. It's completely obsolete. It's useless now. Uh, why? Why? Know. Why? Why is it useless now? If because a... it, because it has it. There's no secrecy anymore. I mean, if and it only because, works if it's a secret, right? And because of the advancements in ordnance, they could just you know you could hit that thing with a bunker buster and just take out the whole thing, right? You have to keep digging deeper to make these bunkers safer. Just for clarification, they sold it before you guys explored? No, they decommissioned it before we explored it. But after we explored it and released the photos online, they decided to sell it. So they put this underground city up for sale. And one of the potential buyers was a guy named Robert Vecino. He was a property developer in California. And I just called him and I said, why do you want to buy the bunker? And he said, oh, I'm going to use it for its intended purpose. But rather than sheltering government elites and, and dignitaries and politicians, we're going to shelter everyday people. I'm going to have 100 spaces that I'm going to sell off to people. And they're going to have space in this bunker that they can retreat to in the event of a, of a disaster. And he said, it, you know, it's not useful for the government anymore because it would be directly targeted. But if it's full of civilians, private individuals that bought space in the bunker. No one's going to bomb that because no one cares, right? You're going to leave those people alone. So that was his plan. 
That was his business model. I ended up spending a lot of time with, with Robert um, hearing about all of his other plans. And he had already built a bunker in Indiana that was a Cold War telephone exchange. And I, I spent a long weekend in there. And that, it, it was impressive and comfortable. And so, so then I had to imagine, like, what would he do with this space? And that was kind of, that was the, that was the rabbit hole. Brad told us that the United Kingdom is not the only government that has this history of building bunker space. Switzerland has a bunker space for 110% of their, their population. They built that during the Cold War. I don't know why they overbuilt it to the extent they did, but they're Swiss, so you know, <laughs> <laughs> so things go there. Yeah. But um, I read a recent article where um, a Swiss official was asked, you know, if this war in Europe were to start spreading, if NATO got dragged into it, you know, and it turned into a major conflict that is going to spread across the continent, do you feel prepared to shelter your citizens? And and he laughed. He said, the bunkers are ready. They are fully stockpiled. We can outlive absolutely anything. And that, that confidence that you see in Switzerland, in South Korea, probably in North Korea, I'm sure that they've got a huge amount of bunkered space in North Korea and many other parts of the world. That is not something that we can rely on here. Part of that is it goes back to World War II. I mean, a lot of these air raid shelters were in Europe were built during World War II. Obviously, we in the United States, we didn't worry about being bombed here, so they weren't constructed. But, you know, during the Cold War, I mean, they, they ran the numbers. They thought about it. Uh, there was a nuclear strategist called Herman Kahn who sort of ran the numbers on what it would cost to build bunkers for every American. And it was essentially more than the GDP for an entire year. I mean, it was wow. just, it, yeah, it was astronomical. So then you think, well, you know, you could build them in densely populated urban areas, particularly ones that are likely to be nuclear targets. But then you end up with this kind of inequality that you're creating, right? Where people that are in suburban areas and rural areas are, are left to their own devices. So it's a, it's a tricky calculation, you know, and the bigger the country is and the more dispersed the population, the more difficult it is to protect everyone. Yeah. Um, so the, the message here during the cold war was if, if you don't want to be hit by a nuke, leave the city and move to the suburbs and dig up your backyard and put a bunker in there. And, and millions of people did that. So a lot of these big bunkers were built during the Cold War when it seemed like nuclear war was looming. But today, there are some governments that are now building bunker space with climate change in mind. The most striking example is Singapore. I mean, Singapore is going through this incredible transition and they are at the forefront of preparing for the climate crisis right now. They're excavating to the bedrock underneath the city, putting in massive reservoirs for water and fuel storage. They're putting shopping malls underground because they're predicting that at some point it's going to be too hot during certain parts of the year to be above ground. They're, they are really going for it. I've seen some of the engineering plans for the subterranean city that they're building and it is quite incredible. Yeah. So the answer in an urban environment is that you have to dig. You have to keep you have to keep going deeper in order to build these new layers. So now we're digging out this infrastructure um and we keep burying 
levels lower and lower. I mean, that Singapore example is fascinating. Do you think that this is because they have a growing population and this is why they're doing that? There, there's a multitude of reasons. So the, yeah, population density is one. They, they just can't expand. There's nowhere mm-hmm. to go. But the engineers are very clear to me about the fact that they are building for a, a hotter future. Mm-hmm. They're thinking about what it's going to be like to, I mean, I don't know, I don't know if you've been to Singapore when it's like hot and sweaty, <laughs> but it is, it, it is hard to navigate. It's hard to breathe. You know, you can kind of imagine with like a 10 degree increase in temperature, it would just, you, you couldn't be on the surface. Right. And, you know, I don't want to be, I don't want to be too pessimistic um, in the context of climate change. Cause it just, you know, we, then we start going down the rabbit hole of mass migration and, and climate refugees and the total transformation of populations around the world as they try and get away from the equator and all of that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we, we are going to have to think about if we're going to stay in those places that are already challenging to live in in the summer or in the hot seasons, you know, yeah. like how do we how do we build for this future when it becomes even hotter? Right. So, okay, there are these examples of governments around the world building bunkers to prepare for climate change. But the bulk of Bradley's research is really not about governments at all. Most of what Bradley studies is communities who are getting ready for a wide range of catastrophes. In other words, preppers. So I'm interested in quirky subcultures. The urban explorers obviously, you know, had... I mean, there was a a deep fascination with their motivations. Why do they want to go to these places? And so when I ran into these preppers who wanted to move into the spaces that urban explorers were exploring, I had the same sorts of questions. Like, what motivates them? What are their backgrounds? What is it that concerns them so much that they would use their disposable income to buy into one of these places? So those were the questions that I was asking. And you move into the realm of speculation very quickly. Preppers are intensely involved with a perpetual thought experiment about the future. Yeah. What might go wrong? What could happen? And those narratives are influenced by their personal beliefs, by their associations and connections with friends and family, but I think most importantly by the media. Yeah. Right. We, yeah. You know, you know, it used to be the case not that long ago, a couple hundred years ago, that if you were prepping, it was intensely local. It was about the situation that was in front of you. I mean, it was about protecting your friends and family, your immediate community. It might even be just seasonal, right? I mean, human beings have been doing this forever. You've got to stockpile before the winter. You've got to make it through to the next spring when you can grow again. But what these preppers were doing is they were working on a much broader scale. You know, they were thinking about existential threats. Yeah. What would happen if there were all-out nuclear war? What would happen if an asteroid hit the Earth? What would happen if artificial intelligence ran rampant? Or what would happen if there was a mass coronal ejection that wiped out all of our electrical systems in an instant? Right? How would we respond to that? Yeah, what's interesting about that when you talk about the sort of news, the you think about the global media is like, what are the big stories about the ends of the world that we're reading all the time? And how are people reacting to those stories? Because these are stories of possibility. Some of them seem kind of crazy. 
some of them not so crazy. And, you know, it's very easy to be judgmental about somebody who's fixated on preparing for some catastrophic event in the future. But at the same time, there's a lot to be worried about in the world today. How many different people did you talk to? Like, just tell us about the scope and scale of what went into writing the book. So I eventually ended up interviewing about 100 people in eight countries. I tried to make a clear distinction between the people I called the dread merchants, the ones who were selling the solutions to your fears, and the everyday people who were buying into these communities, right? Who are, who are just kind of, you know, concerned citizens, and they're, they're trying to buy their way out of a state of anxiety. So I also tried to get a spread around like different ways of prepping. So you can think about this on the one extreme as people who are building a bunker stockpiling guns, often ex-military, thinking primarily about defense. You're describing like half of my best friends right now. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then on the other end of the spectrum, you've got people who are focusing on sustainability, getting off the grid, on growing food, making tools, creating renewable systems, building communities. So you know, when we think about prepping, we tend to get stuck in that mode of thinking that these are kind of like, you know, hardcore Christian gun people, right? But there's a huge spread of political beliefs, demographics, um, the kinds of spaces people are building. And so I, I tried to, you know, traverse that range as much as possible. I was just going to say, I think it is easy to be judgmental about preppers' actions and intentions until an event like COVID-19 actually comes to fruition and you see that what preppers are doing is legitimate. And I think in a way it validates what they're doing. Emmy, you totally nailed it. I, I started writing the book in 2017. I finished writing in the middle of the pandemic, essentially. And I had this incredible moment where I went back, I mean, you know, after the pandemic had broken out and I was hiding in the mountains and in a cabin on a quarter acre in the middle of nowhere. And I'm, I'm, you know, reflecting on the fact that this disaster that people had been describing to me in speculative and slightly theoretical terms had happened. That doesn't happen very often that you start writing a book about something that is totally speculative and then it happens. So I went back and I, and I searched my interview transcripts and suddenly pandemic kept coming up over and over again, pandemic, pandemic. They all kept saying it, right? They kept saying a pandemic's on the horizon. There hasn't been a, a pandemic for a hundred years. They happen with regularity. It's coming, you know, this is what we need to prepare for. But what's hard to square is that, yes, it vindicated those views, but then, you know, right next to that, I would have a paragraph where they're saying, you know, aliens are going to invade <laughs> and take over the earth, you know, and it's like, okay, this, this is the hard thing to deal with, with preppers, right? Is that, is that conspiracy theories inevitably bleed into these narratives? Because, because if you're speculating, how far do you push it? right? It's like, okay, we, we know with certainty that there are going to be natural disasters, yeah. right? So preppers tend to describe that as practical prepping. Like that's your three-day stockpile. Like, mm-hmm. have, like have a backup generator, have some food and water. If you can make it through three days, great. If you can get your neighborhood through three days, even better. But once you start speculating on really extreme scenarios, the preparations take an extreme character to match that, right? So that's where you find people spending literally millions of dollars building 
subterranean citadels and stockpiling them to ferry thousands of people through months at a time. Governments have done this for a long time, right? This is now it's, but it's now just, it's hitting the private market and it's taking on a new form. That's interesting. Well, okay. So I want to stick on something for a second though. As you are meeting different subcultures, you know, eight different countries, that's a lot. That's a lot of people that you talk to. How much did climate change come up in the conversation? One of the things I'm wondering here, Brad, is if it was a sort of central talking point brought up as the concern versus one of many concerns. It it came up constantly. And the constant refrain was, yes, the climate is changing, but we don't know if humans did it, but it's happening and we're going to have to respond to it. But the thing that they would often then follow up with was, we don't know how to prepare for that. Most of them agree that we can't stop it, that we're now in the adaptation phase rather than the mitigation phase of the climate crisis. So they said, we're going to have to adapt to this thing. I would ask them questions like, well, do you need to think about growing different kinds of crops to sustain your community as the climate changes? I would hit a wall. It was too much to try and think about how you deal with the crisis more broadly. But then if I ask them, for instance, in California, you know, so the the climate crisis is causing things to dry out here. We're having an increasing frequency and severity of wildfires. How do you prepare for the wildfire? Then they would have an answer. Yeah. Okay. So this, I mean, this, I'm glad you let it here to this question of adaptation, you know, especially when I was getting my PhD, I had all kinds of researcher friends who are working in climate adaptation. And they were kind of interested in the question, like, are we going to be able to produce drought-tolerant corn, for example? Or they may be interested in sea level rise as it's likely to affect the eastern seaboard or something like that. What are the economic costs? And it's all sort of big picture policy systems level adaptation questions. What's interesting here about your work to me is that it's at the individual and communal level of adaptation, which is, I think, just a very different valence than a lot of the climate adaptation conversations I've had in the past. No, it's all interconnected. I mean, there was one bunker in particular in Kansas, a survival condo that I visited, this 15-story subterranean geoscraper. Absolutely incredible place, but they they had three systems of of energy production. And so this bunker had wind turbines, solar panels, diesel generators, a battery backup system, right? So, I mean, the diesel generators are, are unlikely to ever be fired up, right? So other than the sort of stored fuel, what they created was a sustainable structure, but it was kind of just a byproduct of wanting to be self-sufficient. So I do think that the more people think about adapting to climate changes, the more they're actually coming up with solutions for things, Hmm. sometimes unintentionally. Um, I just want to say, I guess it's difficult for them to prep for something like climate change because it evolves over time and is not like an instantaneous event like a nuclear war or a pandemic. So in a way, there's not really a an end point to how much prepping they can do. Yeah which I think could be maybe part of the difficulty of prepping for something like the climate crisis. No, you're, you're absolutely right. The incremental nature of the disaster makes it very hard to prepare for. Let's look back at the pandemic again. You know, it's sort of, you can build a bunker with three months of supplies. Three months wouldn't do very much for you if this 
I mean, this thing rages on for years, right? So what it gives you is some breathing space. You can look at what's happening on an incremental level and think, okay, what other systems do we need to put in place here? What communities do we need to be connected to? How do we start building up some resiliency to this thing that appears to be happening, unfolding in a, in a slow but horrible way, right? So I, I think that there's, the, the pandemic was in some ways a, a good kind of warm up <laughs> for what is to come. I mean, I, I, I that sounds really pessimistic, but um, no, I mean, I, I get that. I mean, I think that the, the pandemic has been informative in a number of ways. We have had pandemics on planet Earth before. It's likely that we're going to have another one. Sure enough, here we are in 2020 and we got one. So it's predictable in that way, but it doesn't tell you how it's going to feel when it arrives. And it doesn't tell you, okay, I'm going to try and think through what are the points of failure in the global economic system? What are the points of failure in my neighborhood or in my house? What am I going to need? So I think we've learned something from COVID-19 in terms of what acute pain can do on a global scale that, that maybe offer some lessons for the reality of climate disruption. But am I making sense, Brad? Yeah, yeah. I, one of the preppers at the beginning of the pandemic, I emailed her and I said, what do you think the outcome of this is? You know, did you go into the bunker? When are you going to come out? And she said, look, either you're prepared or you're not, and you're going to come out of this pandemic, a hunk, a chunk, or a drunk. Those are, those are, those are the only options. <laughs> that is so true. Everybody, <laughs> everybody I know falls into one of those categories. Yeah. yeah and, yeah. but, but I, you know, so I asked her, okay, oh, come on, you got to elaborate on that. And she said, yeah. well, you know, the, the preparations aren't just about, rations and materials and space they're about your mental fortitude yeah and and if you've been rehearsing this possibility for years you're more mentally prepared to deal with it i think there is something to be said about that but she also said every time we have a disaster or an emergency that we have to deal with it's a stress test for us as preppers oh do the supplies hold up did you prepare for this particular scenario And so she said every time they went through something, whether it was everything from the pandemic to just a financial crisis in the family, right? Did we have the stockpiles we need to be able to bridge our way into the, uh, you know, into the future? You write about the difference between fear and dread. What is that difference and why is it important? (laughs) I'm I'm glad you picked up on that. Um, If we fear something, it's generally something in the present right? We're confronted with something and we react, you know, that's where the the fight or flight instinct kicks in. Uh, Dread is much more speculative, you know, it's something that's happening in the future that we're anticipating, that we're thinking about. There are some people who would argue that, you know, across the whole animal kingdom, humans are the only ones that feel dread because we're thinking about things in the future. We, We can think in a year or five or 10 and be afraid, you know, we might be anxious about anything from a war breaking out to our retirement not being in place, right? That's a very unique characteristic that human beings have to sort of make themselves anxious. So what what always interested me about these preppers is that they were not only recognizing that they were feeling this dread about the future, but they were putting measures in place to mitigate the fear that they would feel in the future when those things actually take place, if that makes sense. And and then what I found when I spent time with many of these preppers as they were putting their preparations in place is it, it gave them a sense of peace as they were working on it. 
So even though they were preparing for something in the future that was based on this sense of dread, it was it was actually providing them with a kind of safe mental space through physical activity as they were building out these things and and talking about it and working through it. You know, community is also a big part of it. Yeah. Uh, talking to other people about what you're preparing for. That really raises like, okay, there, there's something to be said for, you know, an individual's capacity to imagine a catastrophe in the future and to have a shed, a bunker, a, a piece of property, a cabin, whatever. One of the cross-cutting themes and lessons from your research and examining the prepper communities is how important, you know, individual skills are and community and how it's it's groups that rebuild things. I, it seems to me like at the rough level, there's a correlation between how many people are invested in preparing for a given disruption and how far out into the future you can look. So if you've got five people, you can maybe plan for a year. And if you've got 50 people, maybe you can start thinking about five years or something like that. I guess what I'm trying to get at is how far out were some of the communities you were interested in? How far out were they looking in terms of what they're preparing for? So so there's a, there's a market change from Cold War preparations to the preparations of today. And the biggest change that I found was that in the Cold War, people were building shelters in their backyard for themselves and their families. What we're now seeing and people are understanding more and more is that you need a community to survive. You know, you've got to diversify skills. You need complementary skills. Mm-hmm. You need mutual assistance groups, as they describe them. You need to know your neighbors. You need to be able to rely on them. So most of the bunker builders <laughs> that I'm finding now are building communities. But the way that they do that differs. So in the most expensive communities, you can't really pick your neighbors. You know, if, if people are plopping down a check for one and a half, three million for space inside a bunker, you know, you don't say no to anyone. And yeah. you probably end up with a bunch of jerks in that bunker and things go terribly wrong at some point. But if you have a, a smaller scale community, you know, a rural property well, you know, Mormons in Salt Lake City are a great example of people who have, who have built these phone tree networks. People are throwing up supplies, not for themselves, but for the community. I am absolutely convinced that in the event of a terrible disaster, Salt Lake City would be the, the last city standing. Those people have incredible preparations in place, but they're all based around community. There's nothing selfish about the prepping that they're doing. That's a big change that, uh, that I've seen over time. I find I find that really fascinating. I'm I'm curious because of the cost required to become involved in a prepping community like this, does it exclude certain kinds of individuals from becoming preppers or getting involved in in these communities? Not really. I didn't find any of these communities that they would forcefully exclude certain people. They weren't excluding people based on religion or political beliefs or demographics or whatever. You know, anyone who could buy into the community could buy in. Yeah. But but it is the case that especially people living in cities who are paying out a lot of their income to rent don't really have the disposable income to be able to prep in this way or the space, like just the literal space to put stuff. I've lived in cities for the last 15 years before I bailed out in the pandemic. And every place I lived, there was nowhere to, you know, stockpile food and water and fuel and a backup generator. I mean, that would have been crazy in all these little apartments I lived in. 
what you're finding in those places is that there's a kind of, I don't know how to describe it. I mean, people are, are building urban prepping groups that are sort of hyper complementary. You know, it's like, I will store one tub of food under my bed. You know, you store the water. And if something goes wrong, I'm going to call you and we're going to come together and, and get out of here. So often in urban areas, rather than having a plan to hunker down, they'll have a plan to bug out, you know. Yeah. We're going to th- we're going to throw everything into a backpack. The roads are going to be clogged, so I'm renting a space for a kayak at the marina. <laughs> we're going to paddle out of here or whatever. <laughs> I mean, people come up with really amazing ways to get out of dodge. Uh, you know, there is without question a, an apocalyptic narrative that surrounds climate change, right? I think that that's not entirely wrong. But the pace at which we get there and what the catastrophe looks like along the way, that's the thing that I think is hard to imagine. And I also feel like our imagination around the environmental crisis is is just like not in the right place. It's not quite grounded in reality. So what's crazy and what's not crazy when it comes to how some people are prepping for the environmental crisis? It, it seems like we're in the perfect place as a species to address this issue, right? I mean, we just had a pandemic that seemed totally unrealistic and supernatural and impossible. It, you know, it's and it and it emerged. We've got war in Europe, which we haven't seen since World War II on this scale. Mass migration of refugees fleeing from a terrible war. All of these things we're being confronted with were possibilities that have come to fruition. The climate crisis is another one of these possibilities that will come to fruition. It seems like it's the perfect time to have a conversation about how do we realistically deal with this when it happens, rather than the conversation we were having before the pandemic, which was where we keep sort of, you know, pushing the boat out. But I I think you're right that sort of, you know, popular science fiction, Kim Kim Stanley Robinson, of course, you know, Ministry for the Future, The Walking Dead, you know, all of this popular culture that we're producing, I feel like there's, you know, and maybe this is a subliminal intentionality with the with the producers of this content maybe it's not but i feel like they're trying to prompt us to imagine what if we are dumped into this future right how do we respond to it here's where i think your research though is different that i think that i mentioned earlier that a lot of my friends who work in the climate adaptation space in a sense their attention is focused on the you know sort of environmental world in the most literal, broadest sense of what climate supports which crop and what is the economic outcome at a a broad scale, a systems level. What I feel like you've been able to get to a little bit more are the sociocultural conditions that surround reacting to a crisis, right? Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, the the preppers were very clear with me when I sort of started asking questions down this line. They said, look, we, we can't depend on the government to take care of us anymore. We don't live in that world anymore. And we can talk about all the reasons why that might be, you know, neoliberal agendas that have been stripping out the social safety net and, you know, not addressing the climate crisis early enough and it's exacerbating natural disasters. And, you know, we know why this is all happening. But what's interesting to me is that they were saying, we just have to take this into our own hands now. And Although it is a case of survival of the self, our most base instincts to say, like, I'm going to make it through whatever is coming at me. They also described it to me as a way of taking pressure off of state systems. So they're like, 
if FEMA needs to respond to a disaster and, you know, you've got 10,000 people in that disaster zone, but a thousand of them are preppers and not only don't need help, but can start helping other people, right? Then you're in a much better situation. I don't know. I, I enjoyed the journey of going to see these preppers and thinking of them as sort of, <laughs> I mean, in the beginning, I thought these are conspiracy theorists or they're kind of self-absorbed. And then slowly I, I started to come to this realization that, oh my gosh, they're doing this for community. They're doing this for their families. They're doing it for society. They actually had this, these broader goals. And as I mentioned, unintentionally often through their actions, we're taking a burden off of the system now. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so it's, it, there's altruism in there. That's that's not obvious if you, I don't know, come at it with a certain point of view. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I think the media narratives have a lot to do with that, which is why I love talking about this, you know, yeah. because, you know, you've got to counter that narrative that, that I came into the project with, right? Because, you, I mean, it's inevitable that if you soak up enough of these stereotypes, Mm-hmm. that you'll begin to apply them to, to groups of people. And in fact, that's not what I found at all. I found people who are very generous, very sincere, very hopeful. I mean, but in terms of, okay, so if community is important, if not the central consideration, then it does seem that like one of the categories of expertise you would want in that situation is interpersonal communication dynamics like you would want a fucking group therapist to be in the bunker with you so that you can sort through all the bullshit that comes to the table when people are fearful and at each other's throats i mean i guess what i'm really interested in here is how many of the people you talk to beyond saying like community matters are really taking the step to think about like what what kind of collective action is also fundamental for a world in the future rooted in crisis? Uh, The honest answer, which is kind of messy, is it it varies. I went to some communities that had a very authoritarian top-down approach where it was like, when the disaster hits, you, you do not get to make decisions anymore. We will decide how to save you in that situation. And some people are quite happy with that. They're like, hey, you're, you're the expert. You've been studying this for years. I'm, I will just sign my rights away and you just make sure that I'm alive in three months. Other communities, you know, they did take a more communal approach. And I saw them spending a lot of time talking about, for instance, complementary skills. You know, like, yeah. hey, I, I'm going to take the lead on electrical work. You take the lead on on plumbing. Between all of us, we're going to be able to make it through pretty much anything because we won't have to call for external help. So, so you know, the way that people respond to that sense of anxiety about things that could go wrong varies drastically. And that is reflected in the spaces that they build. And as a, as a geographer, that's what I found really fascinating. Is like, you could almost, like I can almost look on Google earth at various prepper encampments and figure out their political, ecological, psychological philosophies based on how they build. Yeah. I'm well, let me, let me phrase it a little differently because I think one of the questions I'm really trying to get at is within these communities, did the topic of how are we going to resolve disputes have for one of a better term or law and order? I mean, how, how much did that kind of question come up? Because like, that's what society should do in some sense is figure out, you know, how justice is it is administered? 
Well, that that's why they had the the library in Burlington Bunker that they could use to reconstruct, you know, not not just streets and roads, but laws, right? You have to have those kind of foundational documents preserved. But this is you're asking the most difficult question in the context of prepping. It's the question of the post-apocalyptic world. Um, nuclear planners in the United States called it the problem of the 14th day. You go into the bunker for 14 days. You emerge from the bunker once the radiation levels have fallen. And what what do you emerge into? What do you do at that point? Like you can imagine the disaster. You can imagine how you'd respond to it. But how do you imagine what you do after it's over? How do you rebuild? You know, what kind of society do you want? I mean, imagine you're living in one of those subterranean, authoritarian, you know, hyper sealed, hermetically sealed bunkers. And then you emerge three months later and it's like, well, what do you, do you just disperse then? Yeah. You've just, you've just built a new tribe. You know, does this person who is running the bunker become some sort of political leader or social or cultural leader? I mean, I just, they, these, these questions are really difficult, but I think until we're willing to take serious the fact that disaster is inevitable, we're going to encounter it. We need to deal with it. It's hard to move on to the second question, which is how do we rebuild after what you know, it's kind of, we're kind of moving into this phase now with COVID, right? It's like, what do we do now? Yeah, you know, yeah, it's yeah, like yeah, yeah. no one wants to go back to work. It's, you know, it's, it's over, but it's not. We're kind of in, we're stuck in this messy liminal space where social configurations are being reformed and we're not quite sure what shape they're going to take. No one was asking these questions before the pandemic. No one was saying, hey, if we had a once in a hundred year pandemic, how would we re- rebuild society <laughs> afterwards? You know, totally. well, it's such a hard question to ask. <laughs> it, it, it's unanswerable. I'm posing unanswerable questions, but, <laughs> I, but part of the reason for it is that I do think that there is such a sense of dread and despair that surrounds the climate crisis that if there's anywhere where we can gather some information about what that means in a sociological context or or a you know materialistic mechanical one, then hopefully some knowledge alleviates some of that sense of despair and maybe points to some unique lessons. No, I think you're exactly right. So if we can all now just accept that this disaster is inevitable, this incremental disaster is inevitable, then we move on to the second question, how do we respond to it? Yeah. And then eventually we can move on to the third question, which is what does it look like after the dust settles, right? Yeah. So, but But we have to first accept those very important questions that your friends who are researchers are asking, right? Where do we plant these new crops? What do we do with cities or countries that are underwater? Where do the migrants go that are displaced from these places? We can model this stuff out. We know it's going to happen. We know it's going to happen in 30, 50 years, right? So then you have to think, okay, like we have to start putting plans in place now. Like which countries are going to accept 100,000 migrants from Pacific Islands that have been submerged, right? That's a really hard conversation to have with people. But I think it helps to get out of the mitigation mindset. I, I, yeah. I'm I, not I, that... It's, it's, it's hard for me to say that, but I, well, I think we have... Well, I we think have to... we can do both. I mean, I think that we can bend the CO2 curve and also plan for the inevitable migrations of the future. And but the, the, yeah. but the problem is if we if we don't accept the inevitability of the crisis then people won't plan for the aftermath, right? So that's what preppers taught me. Just accept the disaster. Like life is chaos. It's okay. We will find a way through. We're going to build a new future. Hopefully it looks better than what we're living in now. But, you know, unless you accept the inevitability of disaster, you can't get there. 
I don't know if I'm 100% on board with that just yet, but it's point <laughs> taken, point taken. <laughs> Amy? I was just going to compare it to like procrastinating an assignment almost. Like the more that you, the <laughs> more you the avoid it. Finals week of her fourth year. <laughs> Sorry, that's where my mindset is at right now. Um, but the more you avoid something, the bigger the problem becomes. And I feel like a lot of what you just said in regards to prepping has to do with acceptance. And I think part of our society in regards to the climate crisis hasn't fully accepted what is to come. And that can be an issue in terms of preparing for what's to come. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it's so much easier to respond to what's in front of you, you know, like yeah. in the mountains, we have wildfires every year. It's like mo- the majority of the year is wildfire season now. And at some point my house is going to burn down. I mean, it's just going to happen. I mean, I can, I can, cry about that all day long <laughs> or I can you know put some stockpiles in place to make sure that me and my family and my guinea pigs and my dogs make it off the mountain <laughs> you know right um in your book you also kind of describe what preppers are doing as actually a sign of hope I'm wondering if you could elaborate on that well yeah one of the preppers told me if, if you don't have any hope that there is a future there's no point in preparing for it that is Actually, the reason why a lot of them told me they weren't preparing for these existential threats, made you know, major threats that would be catastrophic to humanity. If if you've reached that level of nihilism, like we're all going to be wiped out by some cataclysmic event, then there's no point preparing for it. You might as well just enjoy what life you have left. But if you see a future and you see that we can get there if we just put some measures in place that will allow us to cross that bridge then it's worth investing in. And one of the most important components that every single prepper made clear to me was you have to have a community that you can depend on. You know, that might be family. It might be the people that you live close to. Everyone has a different idea about how they would prepare for these things. And I think all of them are worth considering. Um, you yeah. know, that's, that's what I tried to do with the book to sort of give everyone equal airtime to talk about, you know, what they're worried about and how they're preparing for it. You know, the the uh, story that I came away with was definitely not the story that I set out to write. I had all these preconceived notions that these preppers were sort of a bit kooky and that they were perhaps over the top with their preparations. And I left feeling like them, filled with a sense of hope that like, yeah, you you can, you know, build a community and put some things in place that will mean there there is a future to look forward to. And that's, that was the, the biggest takeaway for me. Well, you know, I, I've been pushing on the sort of like, what can we learn from the prepper community in the context of the climate crisis, you know, from, from a lot of different angles. And I don't think that there are simple answers here, but I do think that there are like lessons that can be extracted to you know, a, a much uh, and and scaled to um, a much larger set of conversations that are really worth having. And I, and I kind of like the point of some level of acceptance is necessary um, in, in order to, you know, confront our fears and deal with the inevitable future. Yeah. Yeah. Have, have you heard the phrase doomer optimism? If I have, it's not. It's, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's <laughs> maybe I just what, did. I think I just did. <laughs> that's yeah. That's kind of what you're touching on here. Doomer optimists like accept the inevitability of you know bad things happening, but also yeah. are optimistic that they can deal with those things because they accept that reality. 
I'm kind of I'm kind of moving into that space right now. That's not a a, a personal journey as much as a, an effect of spending time with all of these preppers who I thought were going to be terrible pessimists, and actually were telling me, "Dude, if we didn't believe there was a future, we wouldn't be preparing for it." The whole point of putting these preparations in place is so that we we are all okay, and we we make it through, or at least some of us make it through. Um, well, that feels like a pretty good point to end on. I mean, I I could sit and do this for hours, honestly. (laughs) Super fascinating. Bradley, thank you for making time for this conversation. It's a real joy. Thank you so much, Brad, for coming on today. I really appreciate it and value um, speaking with you. Thank you very much, Mike. Thanks, Emmy. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much again to Bradley Garrett for that conversation. Again, his book is called Bunker, Building for End Times. Thanks also to Emmy Goodwin. Thanks to Brandon Burke for production assistance. I'm Michael Osborne. See you next time.